the structure of the good society. In the House of Lords, there's a special chamber used, among other things, as the place where new peers are robed before their introduction into the House. When my predecessor, Lord Jakobowicz, blessed memory, was introduced, the official robing him commented that he was the first rabbi to be honoured in the upper house. Lord Jakobowicz replied, no, I'm the second. Who is the first? asked the surprised official. Lord Jakobowicz pointed to the large painting that decorates the chamber and gives it its name. It's known as the Moses Room because of the painting that dominates it. It shows Moses bringing the Ten Commandments down from Mount Sinai. So Moses was the first rabbi to adorn the House of Lords. The Ten Commandments that appear in this week's parasha have long held a special place, not only in Judaism, but within the broader configuration of values we call the Judeo-Christian ethic. In the United States, they were often found to be adorning American law courts, though their presence has been challenged in some states on the grounds that they breach the First Amendment and the separation of church and state. But they remain the supreme expression of the higher law to which all human law is bound. Within Judaism, too, they held a special place. In Second Temple times, they were recited in the daily prayers as part of the Shema, which then had four paragraphs rather than three. It was only when sectarians began to claim that only these ten and not the other 603 commands came directly from God that the recitation was brought to an end. Even then, the text retained its hold on the Jewish mind, so that even though it was removed from daily communal prayers, it was still kept in the Siddur as a private meditation to be said after the formal service had been completed. In most congregations, People still stand when they're read as part of the terror reading, despite the fact that Maimonides explicitly rules against it. Yet their uniqueness is not straightforward. As moral principles, they were mostly not new. Almost all societies have had laws against murder, robbery, and false testimony. There's some originality in the fact that they are apodictic, that is, simple statements of you shall not, as opposed to the casuistic, if X, then Y, but there are only 10 among a much larger body of 613 commands, and they're not even described by the Torah itself as 10 commandments. The Torah calls them the Aseret Hadvarim, the 10 utterances, or as somebody some, sometimes say, Aseret Hadibrot. So the Greek translation, the Decalogue, meaning the 10 words. What makes them special is that they're simple and easy to remember. And that's because in Judaism, law isn't intended for judges and lawyers alone. The covenant at Sinai, in keeping with the profound egalitarianism at the heart of the Torah, was made not as other covenants were in the ancient world between kings. The Sinai covenant was made by God with the entire people. Hence the need for a simple statement of basic principles that everyone can remember and recite. More than this, they establish for all time the parameters, the corporate culture, you might almost call it, of Jewish existence. To understand how, it's worth reflecting on their basic structure. Now here there was a fundamental disagreement between Maimonides and Nachmanides on the status 
of the first sentence, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. The Rambam Maimonides, in line with the Talmud, held that this is in itself a command to believe in God. Nachmanides held that it wasn't a command at all, it was a prologue or a preamble to the commands. And in fact, modern research on ancient Near Eastern covenant formulae tends to support Nachmanides on this. The other fundamental question is how to divide them. Most depictions of the Ten Commandments divide them into two because of the Shneluchotabrit, the two tablets of stone on which they were engraved. Roughly speaking, the first five are about the relationship between us and God, and the second five about the relations between human beings themselves. But there is actually another way of thinking about the numerical structure in the Torah altogether. So, for instance, think of the seven days of creation. They're actually structured as two sets of three, followed by an overarching seventh. During the first three days, God separated domains, light and dark, upper and lower waters, sea and dry land. During the second three days, he filled each with the appropriate objects and life forms, sun and moon, birds and fish, animals and man. And the seventh day was set apart from the others as holy. Likewise, the ten plagues consist of three cycles of three, followed by a standalone tenth. In each cycle of three, the first two were forewarned, while the third struck without warning. In the first of each series, Pharaoh was warned in the morning. In the second, Moses was told to come in before Pharaoh in the palace, and so on. The tenth plague, unlike the rest, was announced at the very outset. It was less a plague than a punishment. Similarly, it seems to me that the commandments, the Ten Commandments, are structured in three groups of three, with a tenth that is set apart from the rest. Thus understood, we can see how they form a basic structure, the depth grammar of Israel as a society bound by covenant to God as a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. The first three, no other gods beside me, no graven images, and no taking of God's name in vain, all define the Jewish people as one nation under God. God is our ultimate sovereign, therefore all other earthly rule is subject to the overarching imperatives linking Israel to God. Divine sovereignty transcends all other loyalties, that's no other gods beside me. God is a living force, not an abstract power, no graven images, and sovereignty demands reverence, don't take my name in vain. The first three commands, through which people declare their obedience and loyalty to God above all else, establish the most important principle of a free society, namely the moral limits of power. Without this, the danger is, even in a democracy, of the tyranny of the majority, against which the best defense against it is the sovereignty of God. The second three commands, the Sabbath, honouring parents, and the prohibition of murder are all about the principle of the createdness of life. They establish limits to the idea of autonomy, namely that we are free to do whatever we like, so long as it doesn't harm others. Shabbos is the day we dedicate to seeing God as the creator, and the universe as his creation. So one day in seven, all human hierarchies are suspended, and everyone 
master, slave, employer, employee, even domestic animals are free. Honoring parents acknowledges our human createdness. It tells us that we're not, that not everything that matters is the result of our own choice, most obvious of which is the fact that we exist at all. Other people's choices matter, not just our own. And thou shalt not murder restates the central principle of the universal Noahide covenant that murder isn't just a crime against man, but a sin against God in whose image we are. So commands four to seven form the basic jurisprudential principles of Jewish life. They tell us to remember where we came from if we are to be mindful of how to live. The third three commands against adultery, theft, and bearing false witness establish the basic institutions on which society depends. Marriage is sacred because it's the human bond closest in approximation to the covenant between us and God. Not only is marriage the human institution par excellence that depends on loyalty and fidelity, it's also the matrix of a free society. As Alexis de Tocqueville put it, as long as family feeling is kept alive, the opponent of oppression is never alone. The prohibition against theft establishes the integrity of poverty, of property, because of course, though Jefferson defined as inalienable rights, those of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, John Locke, closer in spirit to the Hebrew Bible, saw them as life, liberty, and property. Tyrants abuse the property rights of the people, and the assault of slavery against human dignity is it deprives me of the ownership of the wealth I create. The prohibition of false testimony is a precondition of justice. A just society needs more than a structure of laws, courts, and enforcement agencies. As Judge Learned Hand said, liberty lies in the hearts of men and women. When it dies there, no constitution, no law, no court can save it. No constitution, no law, no court can even do much to help it. There's no freedom without justice, and there is no justice without each of us accepting individual and collective responsibility for telling the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Finally comes the standalone prohibition against envying your neighbor's house wife, slave, maid, ox, donkey, or anything else belonging to him or her. This seems odd if we think of the ten words as commands, but not if we think of them as the basic principles of a free society. The greatest challenge of any society is how to contain the universal, inevitable phenomenon of envy, the desire to have what belongs to someone else. Envy lies at the heart of violence. It was envy that led Cain to murder Abel, that made Abraham and Isaac fear for their life because they were married to beautiful women, led Joseph's brothers to hate him and sell him into slavery. It's envy that leads to adultery, theft, and false testimony, and it was envy of their neighbors that led the Israelites time and again to abandon God in favor of the pagan practices of their time. Envy is the failure to understand the principle of creation as set out in Genesis 1, that everything has its place in the scheme of things. Each of us has our own task and our own blessings, 
and we are each loved and cherished by God. Live by these truths and there's order. Abandon them and there's chaos. Nothing is more pointless and destructive than to let someone else's happiness diminish yours, which is what envy actually is and what it does. The antidote to envy is, as Ben Zoma famously said, to rejoice in what we have and not to worry about what we don't yet have. Consumer societies are built on the creation and intensification of envy, which is why they lead to people having more and enjoying it less. 33 centuries after they were first given, the Ten Commandments remain the simplest, shortest guide to creation and the maintenance of a good society. Many alternatives have been tried and most ended in tears. The wise aphorism remains true. When all else fails, read the instructions. <laughs>